Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Suwannee Review Podcast. Hi, I'm Sadiq Fofana. I am uh, editor-at-large at the Suwannee Review, and I'm doing the podcast with Michael Knight, the author of short story collection Evening Land. Teaches at University of Tennessee and lives in Knoxville. And he was one of the first people I met at Sewanee when his uh, story was published in the Sewanee Review. So I'm, I'm happy to have him in front of me right now. I'm happy to be here, honored to be here. And, you know, I remember that reading vividly. Uh, I was when you were reading, I think you started that reading. And I was sitting in the audience next to Jamie Quattro. And we both looked at each other. You read the Okie Doke. And we both looked at each other about halfway through. And we're like, one, it's not fair that we have to follow that. <laughs> and two, like, we knew him when. Like, this guy is going to be huge. You know what I mean? We got to meet him now. That Was your was that your first published story? Yeah. Yeah, that was my first published story from um, this collection. And yeah, that, that, that was an interesting night. And thanks for remembering that. And it was kind of weird to read that outside in front of you know, strangers and then the story with that type of content, but it, it was, it was cool. So when Adam emailed you about this, you replied, I'm a little nervous. And I was like, what? <laughs> this, this guy's wrote so many books and it's like an opportunity for me to get to learn from a seasoned writer and who by many accounts people call a master short story writer and he goes, I'm, I'm a little nervous. And I'm like, I'm nervous too. I'm very new to the idea of, oh, okay, you write something and now you go to an event and you read it and you hang out with other writers. And so I was kind of like observing you and, you know, you were definitely like excited about the event and excited about reading. And, but then there was also like, what I noticed more was just like, it was like you use this opportunity to hang out. You know, <laughs> you know, it was like an opportunity to just have a drink and talk. And, and it was like, I got the feeling like, man, you've done this a lot and you're like here to hang out. That's the, that's the fun. I mean, the, the reading is work. You know what I mean? Like mm. getting on stage is the work part. Mm. The best part is meeting folks like you. Like mm. if we hadn't done that reading, our paths may never have crossed. You know? Mm. And, mm. you know, you make great connections, you make great friends. I mean, some of my best friends are people I met at literary events, you know? So, and also, I mean, it's, you talk shop, but you're also just like getting to know human beings, you know, mm, which is like, mm. that's the, that's the point. I hear that. I hear that. What's the first book that ever made you cry? <laughs> wow. So, okay. This is going to be a terrible and cliche <laughs> answer, but the, the book that comes into my mind is To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, and okay. So you remember the scene where Tom Robinson is in the jail and Atticus goes down to guard the jail and then Jim and Scout and Dill, they sneak out to go down there and um, check on their dad. They know something exciting is happening, but they don't quite realize how dangerous the situation mm. is. And Scout runs away. They're hiding and watching. And she runs away from the group and just starts speaking in like a human way, a friendly way to this mob that's come to lynch Tom Robinson and her innocence they suddenly remember that they're dealing with human beings and they, mm. they leave the, you know, they, they leave and, and Tom's okay for the night. And um, like, I can remember reading that scene. I was probably about 13 or 14. And like, I didn't quite understand what had happened, but I knew that, you know, like I couldn't quite articulate it in the way that I just articulated it. And even that was not that great, but like there was a lot happening underneath the skin of that scene. Like, but I felt it in my body, you know right, what I mean? Like right, it just, right. and it came out that way. Like I just remember bawling mm. reading that scene mm. And I'm sure there was like old yeller or something before that, but that's the one, like I can remember the specific moment, like where I had to close the book, you know, and like, you know, like cry for yeah, a minute yeah. before I could go, before I could start reading again. That's the one that I remember most vividly. Yeah. How no, about you? What was the first book that made you cry? I mean, the first, and it's funny, I'm prepared for this because I knew you would do it back. You're the type of person who's going to throw a question back. So for me, it was Charlotte's Web and it was like... You know, to read it as a kid and like a character dies at the end, as a kid, you're, you know, a lot of ways not prepared for that. No. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I I, have, I don't remember much about that book, but like the one thing I remember is that the animal dies at the end and it's very, very sad. And it's weird because then I'm like, I always thought of E.B. White as like a children's author. And, that, you know, later on in life, I've learned that he's a humorist for New Yorker. Yeah. And that to some extent, I'm like, what if this was like his 
weird, like dark humor. <laughs> like I'm gonna write a book that makes a <laughs> children cry. Like he was having fun with kids. Yeah. You know, I will say I, I missed that book somehow when I was a kid and didn't ever read it until I was reading it to my own kids. And it mm. still makes you cry. Wow. I mean, yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, there's and maybe it's because you're there. I was there, you know, with like my whatever five year old daughter. And I knew that she was reacting to it emotionally and her emotion got me. But like we were, we, mm. <laughs> we cried together, you know, yeah. at the end of Charlotte's Web. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about Evening Land and let's talk about Alabama where this is set. And let's talk about setting as a character. And I live in New York City. And so, you know, this place is very different right off the bat. It's by the water. There's boats. There's young people who navigate boats. <laughs> so... Tell us about Alabama, what it's like, and what, what what you felt was important to portray in this collection. Alabama's a train wreck at the moment. I think in, in a lot of ways, like that collection is intended to be like a love letter to my memory of Alabama, mm. rather than like like the, a truth about Alabama. I wanted to show, you know, to be honest about warts of, of place and problematic things about place. But, you know, I grew up... If I had time to tell you, like my childhood was so lovely. You know what I mean? Like it was, I grew up on a, on a creek, you know, that was in the book outside the city. The city mobile has now grown out to that space, but it used to be much more rural. It wasn't a fashionable place to live. It is kind of now there are million dollar houses and stuff, but then it wasn't, it was, you know, it was kind of the country in the swamp. And um, my aunts and uncles had all the houses next to us. My mom has this from this big Catholic family. And so you'd be out riding your bike, you know, on a summer day. And like every house, you could stop and get a glass of lemonade, you know, and just walk in without knocking, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It was, and so my memories of this place are almost entirely beautiful. But, you know, as I, as I got older, like I began to recognize lots of problematic things about not just the politics of the place, but about the, uh, in the people who raised me, who I still love dearly, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. trying to sort out, like, I can't shake that love, but I also recognize that. I don't agree with that thing. That thing makes me uncomfortable. And so how to sort of sort out like, okay, almost all of my memories are beautiful and filled with love, but how to sort of, how to dovetail that with some kind of truth of the place, you know? And so that's, I mean, maybe this collection leans more toward the side of love and nostalgia than, you know, than the truth of the place, but sort of trying to do both of those things simultaneously and sort of, and you know, the, the, that collection proceeds from the youngest characters to the oldest characters. So sort of thinking about like, there's a kind of innocence that this was true of me, certainly, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15, that fades and changes over time by the time you're, you know, I'm 51 now, but even more, you know, I imagine by the time I'm 65 or 72 or whatever, but you still don't lose that core love of the place, you know, that core. And, and it's also, <laughs> I mean, whether we want it to be true or not, our experiences, the things that happened to us when, when we were kids like for the rest of our lives, we're looking through that lens, you know, and that's a, that's a, that's a place formed lens because yeah, yeah. the people are part of the place too, yeah. you know, the way they sound and the way they act and what they believe that's, it's, that's, you know, that's, that's as much of a part of things as like the way the, the river smells, you know, and mm -hmm. the way the cicadas sound in the grass. And, and so, yeah, we're always looking through that lens, even if we sort of, our opinions alter over time or our beliefs alter over time about the place, you can't, at least I can't shake the lens of the place as, you know, it's a thing I'm seeing the world through. Right, right. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that's interesting, the idea of like an ode to a place and like the truth and like the balance of that. And, you know, I've, I've lived in New York City for about 20 years. So, and it's funny, like I grew up in Boston and I've lived in New York longer. And in many ways, I think of myself as, a New Yorker. And then in other ways, you know, I grew up in Boston and I'm a Bostonian at heart. And Brooklyn is one of those places that just has character. And it's just, it's always a presence in itself. And I think of like Fort Greene, where there's the restaurants by the Atlantic, uh, Atlantic Center. And there's this big mural of the notorious B.I.G., and it's like, and it says, spread love. It's the Brooklyn way. And it's like a quote from Notorious B.I.G. Just the idea of place as like a changing thing and, you know, yeah. a place that, you know, you see from, just like you said, from how your pro tags, they go from younger to, to older or towards the end of this collection and how you can perceive a place yeah. in time. 
you were talking about growing up in, in Boston, but you've lived in Brooklyn longer. The same is true for me. You know, I grew up in, in Mobile, Alabama, but uh, I've lived in Knoxville 21 years now. Mm-hmm. And there was 10 years in Virginia in between. But when someone asks you where you're from, what is your answer? Do you, do you say Brooklyn or do you say New York or do you say Boston? Or Usually I say Boston. Usually I say Boston. But it's, it's so weird because I was, I was born in Houston, Texas, but I didn't live there long enough. I was just the first 12 months of my life. So I have no recollection of Houston, Texas. As far as I'm concerned, it's just the place I was born and I grew up in Boston. And so I would, I would say Boston, but you know, it's funny cause we're, we're at Suwannee right now having this conversation and people are from all over the country and yeah. they ask like, where are you from? Yeah. And I go New York city, you know, cause that's <laughs> right. where I live. And that is interesting. Because we're at the conference and, and people keep asking that question. And the first time I said, I'm from Alabama, and they started asking me questions about you know, living in Alabama. And I was like, well, I haven't lived there for 30 years. <laughs> you know I, mean? so, I don't know what's going on there right now. I live now in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah. Speaking of protags, in the first story, it's about a young man. And he's, you know, he has a girl interest. And uh, my thing is, and, I, you know, I always hate when, when people do it to me. But, like, now I got to do it to you. I'm like, <laughs> it's narrated by an an older man and you kind of press presence there. It's there. Um, And so my question is if this is autobiographical and if this is an ode to mobile Alabama is the pro tag, the young man, is that, is that more like you or is he, is he more like the, the, the older man telling the story? I think there's a, an equal combination of the two things. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about the character specifically in just a second. But, you know, like when you start a story, you don't always know, where, hardly ever do you know where the story's going. You know what I mean? And part of the joy of it is like feeling your way in and saying, okay, what, okay, this is what the story is going to be about. And not just here's the shape of the plot, but here's, what, here's what's meaningful in this story. And, and, but you're often starting like with random stuff or, you know, autobiographical details. And so, I mean, the true parts of that story is I did grow up on a creek very much like that. I did sometimes work summers at a marina, you know, my dad wasn't the owner of the marina, like the kid in the story, but, and there was an old guy at the marina who every Friday would boil crabs and give me a beer. You know what I mean? And probably he won't, he was a perv, you know what I mean? But, um, but it didn't seem that way to me when I was 14 or 13. And, and then I also have always loved those like old school, like dear reader narrators, you know yeah, what I mean? The, yeah. Like the ones who were, fr- but, and I'd also wondered for the longest time, like what would happen if you, about mid-story identified the narr- the speaker. You know, the narrator wasn't just this looming voice, but like suddenly had a presence in the right, story. Right, um, right. And so that's like the the impetus. And and I think, yes, there is there is a part of me in that boy for sure, not only in his experience, but in um, you know, I mean, I described for you this sort of idyllic setting for a childhood. And like I was a really innocent, goofy sort of kid. Mm. I was slower than most <laughs> to realize that the world was a dark and dangerous place, you know. Um but then, you know, and then on the other side, the narrator is older than I am now, but um, the narrator has lost his actual experience, actual loss, you know, and, um, you know, his wife has died and, and, you know, he's sort of looking back on his lost youth through the experience of the young boy. For the boy, it seems like such a small thing, but the story, like all that really happens in that story is he gets his heart broken for the first time. Mm-hmm. But you you remember, like, that's a devastating yeah, moment that is really, and it yeah. alters your... <laughs> Unless something else terrible has happened to you before that, it alters the way you think of like, holy cow, it's possible for people to turn on me. You know what I mean? It's possible. <laughs> like people aren't always, there aren't, aren't always kind and loving. And, and not that the, the, the female character in that story is a bad person or anything, but yeah, I mean, so seeing my kids go through that and, and you know, tr- like you, get, you tell them exactly the right advice mm-hmm. and they don't listen to it. You know what I mean? Like they wade right out into the same mess that we waded out into. So, um, so I think it's a combination of those two things. And I, I hope that comes through in the story that, you know, and I think that also my hope with that story was that by letting the older character narrate that story, like it adds like a layer of experience and maybe depth. If it was just about a 17 year old boy getting his heart broken for the first time, like it would be kind of flat. You know what I mean? And also we'd read that story a bunch of times. The having a character who's experienced loss, who loves this kid, um, who, who feels for the kid, who's trying to tell the kid like, this is a bad, you're making a bad mistake. Yeah. Um, knowing that it's not going to stop, knowing the kid's going to have his heart broken, knowing that that heartache is going to change the kid's perspective on the world. Like that, I wanted that. I hope that would add like a layer of, um, I don't know, gravity or something to, you know, what's a pretty simple yeah. story. Yeah, and yeah, it definitely comes across. And 
you know, what's really interesting about the female character is that, you know, she's not perfect. It's not like she walks into the room and she's like the stunning 10. She's aloof in a lot of ways. And, you know, just the fact that she's, you know, not like the perfect angelic person and she already has a boyfriend, but she's just like not paying him any attention at all kind of adds to the, you know, the tension of the story. I want to read a section from another story and then ask you a question about that. About Smash and Grab. Man, what a story. This is a story about a man who's about to rob a house. A burglar comes in by the name of Cash Dollar. It's excellent name. And the fact that it's like all one, one word, like no space, Cash Dollar. And then he's like, Dressed in khakis, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> so, right then, you're like, okay, cash dollar. Oh, he's dressed in all black with ski mask and whatnot. But the, the fact of the khakis, just like, all right. You're like, okay. He thinks he's alone in the house. And then he just gets hit over the head. And it turns out it's by the girl in the house, the teenage daughter of the owner of the house. Cash dollar closed his eyes. He was glad that he wasn't wearing some kind of burglar costume, the black sweatsuit, the ski mask. He felt obvious in street clothes. Tonight, he chose a hunter green coat, a turtleneck, khaki pants, and boat shoes. He didn't bother wearing gloves. He wasn't so scary looking this way, he thought. And when he asked the question that was on his mind, it might seem like one regular person asking a favor of another. So this is when... He's woken up and the girl is right there. And so he's having a conversation with this girl. He's like, listen, I'm just going to come right out and say this, okay? I'm wondering what are the chances you'd consider letting me go? The girl opened her mouth, but Cash Dollar pressed ahead before she could refuse. And she settled back into her chair to let him finish. Because the police will be here soon and I don't want to go to prison. And I promise if you let me... I'll, I'll leave the way I came in and vanish from your life forever. The girl was quiet for a moment, her face patient and composed as if waiting to be sure he said his piece. He could hear the refrigerator humming in the kitchen. A moth plinked against the chandelier over their heads. He wondered if it hadn't slipped in through the broken pane. The girl capped the bottle of nail polish, lifted the toilet lid from her lap without disturbing the contents and set it on the floor beside her chair. I'm sorry, she said. I really am. But you did break into the house and you put my father's silverware in your pillowcase. And I'm sure you would have taken other things if I hadn't hit you on the head. If you want, I'll tell the police that you've been very nice, but I don't think it's right for me to let you go. In spite or because of her genial demeanor, Cash Dollar was beginning to feel like his heart was on the blink. It felt as thick and rubbery as a hot water bottle in his chest. He held his breath and strained against his bonds, hard enough to hop his chair once, twice, but the tape held fast. He sat there panting. The girl said, let me ask you something. Let's say I was asleep or watching TV or whatever, and I didn't hear the window break. Let's say you saw me first. What would you have done? He didn't have to think about his reply. I would have turned around and left the house. I've never hurt anyone in my whole life. The girl stared at him for a long moment then dropped her eyes, fanned her fingers, studied her handiwork. She didn't look altogether pleased. To the backs of her hands, she said, I believe you. Okay, so how do you come up with an idea of, for something like this? <laughs> you know, I have a very specific answer to that yeah, question. Okay, okay. So you teach and you're, one is always looking for like prompts to give your students. Mm -hmm. And um, I used to give, I can't remember now if I made it up or I took them out of, you know, compiled all these like how to, like, like uh, story starting prompts, mm -hmm, you know, especially mm -hmm. for beginning writing students and, and or, or learning scene prompts. And one of them was something like um, write a scene in which um, a burglar has broken into a house and the police catch him and he pretends to live in the house. So that's not exactly like the, like the story, mm -hmm. but, and I'm telling you, 
And there were like 15 prompts. And I thought that was the dumbest prompt of all of them. But my <laughs> students kept picking it and they kept producing really good scenes. Wow, you know what I mean? And wow. so I was like, well, they, there's clearly something here that I'm missing that my students are getting. And I was, you know, like between things, I, and I'd finished one book and maybe I hadn't figured out what to write next. And so like, let me try that prompt. And so the story, like the point of view shifts and the premise shifts, but it came directly out of that um, prompt. And what made it interesting was when, at least to me, is when the power dynamic shifts you know mm, what i mean and so suddenly mm. all the power is taken away from the burglar and it's given to this teenage girl and um the character who ought to be dangerous is in lots of ways less dangerous than the person who's like duct taped yeah, into definitely. a chair and clubbed him with a toilet <laughs> lid, you know what i mean and so and that's when i like figured out all that that's when the story started getting interesting to me uh, you know it sort of rose beyond the, the that initial prompt but yeah you teach so you know this there are so many times when if you just pay attention, you can learn a ton yeah. from your students. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. And there's a perfect example. Like that story would never have happened if my students weren't smarter than me, you know? Wow. Yeah. I think that's one of the the blessings that, you know, we have as writers is, and when we get the opportunity to teach, you do get to learn from, from students. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's a smart move to try, try the, the same prompts and the same process as we're asking students to do. So, yeah, if it's worthwhile for yeah. them, it ought to be worthwhile for us also, right? We're not just making them jump through a useless hoop. If it's, if it's, you know, if it works for them, it ought to work just as well for us. You know? Exactly. Exactly. So how do you stay motivated and how do you continue to write at a high level? You've accomplished a lot of things that writers dream of, you know, I'm just starting this. And if I've accomplished half of what you've accomplished, I'd be like, it's been a good career. <laughs> so how do you stay motivated and how do you like push yourself to create substantial work? Somewhere young, like I fell in love with like what the written work can do. You know what I mean? And I want to live in that space. You know what I mean? I want to participate in that conversation. Even when I'm doing it badly, I want to do that thing. And, and that, that thing remains exciting to me. You know, even if it's not ever going to get published, the act of of discovery, of discovering the story and living in that space, trying to do what other writers did to me when I was young mm. is still thrilling to me. And I also think, you know, there was a time like, so after my first novel came out, you know, I think maybe like I had like $30,000 in the bank, which seemed like a lot of money to me at the time. <laughs> you know, I, mean? I was like, you know, I'm not, I don't need to teach anymore. I'm a working writer. And so I took a, like a, a year and change, you know, I was out of teaching and I really missed it. I, and I miss the routine of it, but I also missed like those conversations that you have in mm, class mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. you have a reason to always be having you participating in this sort of larger discussion about what literature is, how literature is changing. It kept my mind focused on craft and storytelling in ways that made me excited. Mm-hmm, like I would mm-hmm. leave a good class thinking like, okay, I didn't, that, that was unexpected. I didn't know we were going to get to that place in the conversation about whatever book we were talking about. That was thrilling for me. Let me take that feeling and try to carry it with me to when I sit down to work in the morning. I mean, because I've been impossibly lucky, but like nothing I've ever written has made me rich. You know what I mean? To me, it's just about trying as hard as I can to to make good work. And that still mm-hmm. feels thrilling to me. Right. Um, and you know this, I mean, you fail 92% of the time, <laughs> you know what I mean? But yeah. with those other 8%, like yeah. it feels really good yeah. to be sitting in the chair when you've like the story finally lands, you know, and it, that feeling is like, it hasn't stopped being thrilling for me. I don't have any expectations um, at all, or even any, in any um, ambition to like, you know, win a huge prize or whatever, make a million dollars. But I like making good stories. Mm-hmm. I like reading good stories. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing is like, I mean, it seems like, I don't know, six or seven times a year, I'll read a book or a short story that like startles me in some way or like teaches me something that, that novels can do or short stories can do that I didn't know they could do before. And I'm like, holy cow, I want to go do that. Let me go see if I can do that. It's not just the being excited by a good story. It's where you see a writer make a decision that's like startling and surprising and you've never seen it before. And you're like, I got, I want to go do that. Right, I want to right. see if I can live inside that space on my own. You know, I feel exactly the same way. And as writers, we, we read a lot and sometimes we're like, okay, we've read enough to <laughs> understand what's out there. And just like you said, then there's something comes along and you're like, whoa, wait a second. That just what that does for me. I think the first time I felt that way, maybe like t- around the age of 22 was uh, Juno Diaz. Yeah, Star- there's a great example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The thing that I think about too, when we are talking about uh, students and getting inspiration from teaching and students and whatnot, I always think of, I'm like, who really owns storytelling, right? And like, it's one of those things where storytelling is just kind of inherent and we both have children we've both seen them grow and like from early age, kids tell stories, yeah. you know, they tell stories. And I get super inspired as a, as a writer, but I also get, I get super jealous. I'll be, I'll be like, <laughs> I'll be honest, you know, I'll read something like, oh my God, like, oh my God, it's, I'm mad. It's so good. I'm mad. And off, I get that with the written word, but I also get that with like spoken stories, like students who, and it's not even an assignment. They'll just tell a story like off the cuff. And I'm like, never in a million years would I'll ever be able to come up with that um <laughs> a recent example of a, a spoken story where i was just like there's no way i could ever write that i'm gonna bring it to like nba twitter beef but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like so you know it was on a podcast a couple of nba players like called out kwame brown they you know he's like a a running joke because he was a number one pick in, in the draft and he had a, a decent career but he didn't like live up to expectations and he's kind of been like a, a running joke and they're like you know they make the joke and usually he just does he's quiet you know he just kind of doesn't say anything uh not really online but then he posts this like hour-long video and he tells the story about like how he was drafted, how he was treated. And then he like talks about every single person that like said something about him. And (laughs) he's just like the whole time and his whole refrain, every time he's like telling the story, he's like, yeah, you know, you may got something going on for you, but I got mama's recipe. He kept saying that like (laughs) mama's recipe. And I'm like, wow, I would never like think in a million years of that. So I always think about like storytelling, who owns it and how you can be totally inspired from the written word and like someone just telling a tale. Well, and like, that's the thing that I love about like, this is true of, I think almost every story. So I haven't seen that video, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like, so not only is the, is the story like exciting and angry, there's this full heat, you know, but there's also this like repetition in it. Yeah, I've got mama's yeah, recipe. Yeah, so yeah. what a great story does to me. And this is why like, it's so thrilling to learn new things is like, it does all the things that a story is supposed to do, but it also does it in a way that's new and surprising. Mm -hmm. And and, and it does it so seamlessly that you don't notice that those old fashioned things are happening at all. This is what I love about your work and what my students have loved about your work is that, um, you know, like those, like the voice is so prevalent in those stories that you don't notice how perfectly well-built those stories are. And my students are like, you can watch their eyes get bigger, like, because they want to talk about the voice and they want to talk about rhythm and they want to talk about repetition and they want to talk about like, oh, you know, this is just like real life, you know, as opposed to like we're reading some magical realism or whatever. And, um, and then you point out to them like, look, right in that first line, we have a conflict and a precipitating event. You know what I mean? Boons is coming home from prison. You know? and, um, and then, oh, look, there's a lot of dialogue that deepens and complicates the conflict. And you don't, the story is so seamlessly told that you don't even notice that those like old fashioned things are happening to you, you know? And I, but, and I do think like, you know, you were talking about that mama's recipe and how coming circling back to that line, when you see that in, in a work of fiction, like oftentimes with each repetition, it like accrues a different kind of yes, power, you know what yes, I mean? And, yes. and so that's the thing, like a great writer and, and maybe this is, because that was so off the cuff, it feels accidental. What you're trying to achieve is something that feels accidental. He probably didn't plan to repeat that line, and that's a, so, but it still does the same. It still has the power. But like the great fiction to me, it's beautifully crafted. You know that the writer understands what stories can do, but uh, it feels that accidental yeah. way. Like yeah. the power is coming from yeah. a place that yeah. you know is kind of surprising and interesting. And and you know we were talking about reading other people's work and learning things and. Like if you can take you know, those things and then bring them to the things that you're already doing well, because you can also get stale. You know mm-hmm, what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're writing the same story over and over again and you've learned how to do certain things. And so to do them again doesn't feel as thrilling, but like it, it, it stops feeling thrilling when you, when you stop drawing inspiration from weird and surprising places. And from, if you stop being surprised by other people's work, then that's maybe the time to, you know, hang it up. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. 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 So. I 110% agree with that.
Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. What you're saying about, yeah, the repetition and how it accrues meaning. You know, I, th- I think one example that kind of comes to my head is um, The School by Donald Barthelme. Oh, it's been it, a long time since yeah, I read that story. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, it's, it's a weird form of repetition in that, like, things die in the school. Like, so, like, pets die. But then when you're talking, as you said, with, like, every repetition, there's, like, some more value put on it. And with every death, you know, you can just see how it just ratchets up. So, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. There's a, you know, one of my favorite examples of that is, um, it's called Good Country People, the Flannery O'Connor story. Oh, yeah, story? yeah, yeah. So, like, at first, that story just seems kind of goofy and the character of Helga has a wooden leg. It's just a thing that's part of her character. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the, the second time we hear Helga's wooden leg clunking into the kitchen, like, it start, we start to notice that it's meaningful, it's altered Helga's life. And then the third time we see it, like, we start to sort of, I mean, you're not, this is not happening in your conscious mind. It's happening in your subconscious mind, right? You're, the reader is, like, feeling the weight of these, this accumulation. But you know, the next time we hear it, it's beginning to represent whether we realize it or not, like, something that's missing in her character. And then when it gets stolen from her, it's huge. Like, it's giant. And we should have seen it coming all along. Right, But right. we didn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. Wow. And it's, yeah, it always appears like magic. Yeah. And that's what, like, that's what, you know, I had a student, speaking of learning things from your student, I had a terrific student. I'm going to say his name and the name of his book so that people can go out and get Mm -hmm. it. His name is uh, Michael Shoyoung Shum. Mike Shum is, uh, you know, what his friends call him. His novel's called The Queen of Spades. But so Mike used to use this expression in class that like great writing is like a sleight of hand. You know Mm. what I mean? He was a dealer in a casino. So he's Mm. maybe he was doing shady sleight of hand stuff. But, uh, but, and I think that's true. Like good magic, you don't see the magic happening. You just see the result. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, but you got, but that takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice to be able to do it that smoothly so that the reader doesn't see it happening to him. You know, that's to me, that was a, I was like, oh, Mike, you've nailed it. I'm stealing that. I'm using that in all future classes. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. I'm going to read a section, a little excerpt from The King of Dauphin Island. And this is a story about Marcus Weems, the sixth richest man in the state of Alabama. His wife dies of cancer and he's stricken by grief. He also decides that he wants to purchase all of Dauphin Island. And this may or may not be a sign of his, of his grief, you know? Um, so this is a scene where uh, he's making plans and then he meets with some of like the locals and there's a little bit of pushback. So Marcus supposed it wasn't very often that the sixth richest man in the state strolled into her office and offered to buy every listing on the island. A measure of shock could be expected and forgiven. He spent the remainder of the afternoon on the phone with lawyers and money men, the hair in his ear retaining a faint residual tickle from her touch. He was in his kitchen later, pouring bourbon over ice and boiling hot dogs and listening to Mozart's Concerto Number no. 4 in E-flat major on CD when the doorbell chimed. He drifted in that direction, sipping the drink, his second of the evening, his mind swimming with whiskey and music and the vaguest beginnings of a plan. There were state and federal permits to sort out, and he'd have to sell off a shopping mall to foot the bill. But Marcus had plenty of industry and government connections. And as he pressed his eye to the peephole, it all seemed possible, whatever it was. There in the hall, distorted by the lens, stood the Ten Penny Brothers. Ike smoothed a palm over his hair. Alton straightened the lapels of a Madras blazer. Homer pressed his eye against the peephole on his side, blotting out the view. 
You're the big tipper, he said when Marcus opened the door. Marcus invited them in, set everybody up with a drink. He offered to throw a few more hot dogs in the pot, but they declined. They sat at a table on the balcony in the unseasonable warmth, and Marcus waited for the ten pennies to get down to business. There were no sunset beachcombers leaving footprints in the sand. Norma Bird came by. Homer said, I guess we're here because we'd like to know your intentions. His brothers nodded. Alton's neck was spotted with razor burn and Marcus wondered if he'd spruce himself up for this meeting. I want to buy the island. Uh Uh-huh. I see. And what do you mean to do with it? I'm not sure about that, Marcus said. Homer pursed his lips and stared for a moment into his drink. This is a community, he said, raising his eyes. It's dying, Marcus said. It's nearly dead. The Tenpenny brothers were quiet. They had no rebuttal. Marcus went back inside the condo, leaving them with their thoughts. He found a pen and jotted a figure on the back of a takeout menu from a seafood restaurant that had gone belly up years ago. He refilled his drink, returned to the balcony, and slid the menu across the table. Ike retrieved the pair of bifocals from his breast pocket so he could read it. That's how much I'll give you for the A-frames, Marcus said. Ike held the menu close to his glasses, then backed it away as if trying to bring an optical illusion into focus. Marcus told them, He would understand if they needed time to consider his offer. He explained that he had experience with loss. In the end, they polished off their drinks and shook his hand to seal the deal. So, I mean, this is the story. This is the reason why I met you. Because this was a a Sawani review. Um, And I remember, like, you know, it's always weird. Because, again, I'm new to this. So, it's, it's always weird when an established writer like you come to me and you have encouraging things and I've, you know, and then I read the story and I'm like, Whoa, those encouraging things sound so much, so much better. Cause it's like, <laughs> damn, this guy can do it. Tell us the story of like, how did this get into the Sewanee review? What's the process? So that was the first story I'd ever published in the Swanee Review. And it remains the only story I've mm-hmm. published in the Swanee Review. Um, though I would love to publish again in the Swanee Review. I mean, what I remember about that experience, I had met Adam. He had come and read over at University of Tennessee. And before he was the editor of the Swanee Review, and he had been a visiting writer for us and taught a class. You know, and, and we liked each other and respected each other. And I sent him that story and he liked it. And what I remember about the editing experience is... I don't usually send stuff out. I'm sure the same way until I feel pretty good about it. You know what I mean? Like I, I think it has a chance to get accepted. I'm not just winging it, you know? And I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of Adam. And he, he gave me two really good notes and I want to see if I can remember. I'm not going to be able to remember them word for word, but so in this story, you know, I can't remember if he said this in the introduction or not, but so the, the daughter of Marcus, the daughters of Marcus Weems are uh, fighting back against their dad's intentions. They think he's losing his mind and they don't want him to spend all the family money on this island. And, and Adam said, you know, the only thing that's not coming through here is Marcus's awareness that if he keeps going down this path, he's going to lose his daughters. And that, I mean, you know, it only maybe generated like five new sentences, mm-hmm, but there are five mm-hmm. of the most important sentences mm-hmm. in the story. You know, like there's suddenly, like the risk isn't only that Marcus won't be able to, to buy the island and do this thing that he wants to do because he's lost his wife. But then if he keeps pressing toward that goal, he's going to ruin this other thing. You know what I mean? That was a great note. And then the other note, you know, you said he may or may not be wanting to buy this island because of his grief. Like that was another thing that Adam said was, I get that. Like mentally, I get that, but I think that's what's happening. But, you know, give me a couple lines that connect those two things together. And there's a long litany of the things that he is buying on the island. Cause he's not just buying houses. He's yeah. buying up all the, mm-hmm. you know, the grocery stores and the marina and all that stuff. And there's a couple lines in there, which now are trying, trying to remain, you know, mm-hmm. subtle and beautiful, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. make that connection clearer for the reader. And it's both a light touch, but it's also like, it changed the story. Like it made the story a much better story, a much richer story. And Adam saw things in the story that like, I hadn't even really, 
like I was just having fun, like writing the scenes where the father and the daughters are butting heads, you know, and I liked those scenes because they were fun and they were, you know, whatever the, the daughters are kind of crazy too. And, um, but, but like the, adding that the possibility of loss and the possibility of ruining that those relationships and that love with the daughters, like it changes the end of that story, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the, that was the process. And you know, Adam, I mean, he's a pretty, he's a pretty intense yeah. dude. You know what I mean? He'll edit you. He's, yeah. he's not afraid to yeah, say, yeah. you know, this yeah. sentence doesn't work. And you say, what are, what are you talking about? That's a great sentence. And he's like, no, you're just like riffing there. You're not writing, you know, like get, get underneath the skin of that thing. And it's cool because, you know, when he buys up, you know, the property and then he starts making plans. It's so easy to like overstate and be like, all right, his wife died and he was really sad. So he did this, but like, it's reasonable. And the fact that we know that he is, you know, a wealthy man, like it seems reasonable, but then it increasingly um, becomes like, oh, wait, wait a second. And we see that through the daughter's reactions as well. You're right to point out, I mean, that uh, we were talking about the story as though it were straight up realism. I mean, the story gets, you know, it, it begins to take on, I, I think, sort of some of the vibe of like, of something slightly absurd or, you know, there's almost, we were talking about, I was using the phrase sleight of hand and magic. Like, I, I hope that there's, like, it's larger than life. Is mm-hmm. Like, there's almost something magical about the um, the thing that's happening there at the end of the story. I mean, it's it's not just the conflict is, you know, between the father and the daughters and is he going to spend all the family money, but... There is something both beautiful and absurd about, hopefully, about mm. the thing that he, you know, that he wants to that he wants to do. You asked about. I mean, I know you've um, had a long relationship with Adam and with the Swan Review, and mm-hmm. they published a bunch of stories. And now you're an editor at large. I want to talk about this too because mm-hmm. I think good editors are, pre- are rare, you know, and one that you really trust and stuff. So talk about your experience. I mean, how did you, how did you ever, you know, like the Swan Review? I wouldn't imagine is like high on the list, or at least wasn't before Adam took yeah. over, high on the list of people to submit to, especially if you're not from the South. You know what I mean? And I mean, we knew I, we know it here, but you know, yeah. it sort of felt like a, like an esteemed, stodgy old regional journal. You know what I mean? <laughs> How did you ever come to this one? I mean, yeah, uh, my first story came to Adam through Lori Moore, and Lori Moore was um, my professor. She was, she was at NYU for one semester before she went back to Wisconsin, and she sent one of my stories to Adam and Adam, you know, agreed to publish it. I knew somewhat about literary mags and, you know, you always know about like the New Yorker Atlantic and, um, and I knew Sewanee review through, you know, that name just sticks out because of Flannery O'Connor and, and just the, the name, the Sewanee review is just like, it has like some tradition to it. And so I was like, why not? I was there at a lucky time because it was like a changing of the guards. And, you know, there have been many great stories published in the Sewanee Review. But when Adam took over, there was this sense of like, you know, a different energy. And, you know, he was trying to do some different things. So that was cool. Had, had that story been rejected before? Oh, yeah. I think that story kind of teaches me a lot about like the industry as well. Because the story was rejected in quite a number of places. And Lori Moore, she had very encouraging things to say during during workshop. And it goes to the where you were talking about when you said about uh, Adam and that he's just like really, really honest. And I think of like, you know, we live in an age of political correctness. And I'm telling a story about a group of young black men who rob a Chinese food delivery man. And the first paragraph has this, the N word like seven times. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, you know, even if this is the best story in the world, like you would hesitate, any place would hesitate to, you know, given the, how easy it is to ruffle feathers, you'd hesitate to, to publish yeah. that. So it was very courageous. He was just like, yeah, I'm gonna publish this. And a lot of times it's about, you know that you could ruffle feathers, but you decide to to publish something. And I always tell him, and I, you know, anytime I'm expressing gratitude for him and for for Laurie Moore and for other writers and writers who said nice things, is and I'll say this to you too. It's like it's an act of courage to say that you like something or you want to publish something. Yeah. Um, and it's you read something, and sometimes your first instinct is not the most pure. Sometimes your first instinct is like, especially if it's not published, you, your first instinct is like, whoa, I might want to keep this secret to myself, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody needs to know how good this story is. <laughs> um, but 
not only when you read something that you feel is, is compelling and then it's kind of questionable, the content, it, it really is an act of courage. Or if you're doing something as a writer and you're, you're writing fiction, somebody is writing fiction, it really is an act of courage to be like, you know what? I appreciated that story. That was a good story. And uh, sometimes we kind of don't highlight that as much, I think, sometimes. It's also lucky to me in that story that Laurie Moore was like the reader. Talk about a writer who's willing to take risks. And you're right. I mean, The Okie Doke is a great story. But I can see a lot of journals like reading that first paragraph and being like, no, you know, no this is too much of a risk for us. So it's lucky that, you know, that she saw it and recognized what was in it and then had the good sense to send it to Adam. And so and I tell the story with tremendous, uh, with tremendous love, but... So I had only submitted to the Swan interview one time wow. before that thing, before before King of Dolphin Island got taken by the magazine to the, the older the previous editor George Core, who I after this story that I'm, after this anecdote that I'm about to tell I got to know and and we were you know I was very fond of him and his wife Susan is one of the coolest people ever and so I submitted this story that was in my first book it's called Tenant anyway and George Core I got a letter back from him it wasn't a form letter it was a page single spaced typed and it began. I was an MFA student when I sent when I submitted the story, and it began, "Dear Mister Knight, it always amuses me when a writer your age attempts to tackle a subject as serious as death." <laughs> and then it went on for like that for a page, and I was wow. like, "My God, there's honesty, there's good honesty, and there's rough honesty." Yeah. Like I said, I got to know George, and he published so many good writers, and and you know he was like like a sweet man in a lot of ways, and and you know I had dinner with him and his wife last time I saw him, and they're lovely people, but I was like, and when we had dinner, I was like, George. Do you remember the letter that you wrote me? I mean, that was like, it was mean. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I didn't, I didn't write for weeks after that I got that letter, you know? Well, it's time to hang it up. But so, yeah, there's good honesty and there's bad honesty, you know? Yeah. There is. Wow. And I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know if I would be weirdly flattered that it would, someone wrote a page and like. I think that's yeah, how it was. Like yeah. he was so conscientious. Yeah. A lot of people got one page, you know, letters wow. like that, you know? Wow. So I think that's how it was his thing. Wow. I definitely wanted to ask you a question about conflict, right? So in a novella, you have a series of, of characters and they're, the event is the, the, an oncoming hurricane. And, you know, I teach high school and one of the very first lessons that they make us teach about conflict is explaining conflict. And I just, in my head, vividly remember the, you know, always saying three types of conflict. There's like man versus man, man versus self, man versus nature. And like having specific examples. And it always occurs to me that like most of the man versus nature conflicts are like explicitly man versus nature. It's like, man, I'm trying to get out of this storm. But in this novella, it's like man versus nature, but then all these characters have their man versus man, man versus self thing going on. And my question to you is, is that was that purposeful? Were you thinking of conflict that directly? Or were you thinking like, let me just tell this story about the characters in the hurricane and then what comes of it comes the latter for sure in first drafts, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you know, I was living in Mississippi when Katrina hit and I want to, you know, and that was like this, this, you know, life shattering altering thing for that, you know, that state and Louisiana. And, um, you know, it was kind of like the pandemic where like whatever we, whatever I was working on at the time, I don't remember exactly what I was working on at the time, but like suddenly it felt frivolous. You know what I mean? I might as well write about the thing that's making everything up. Let's write about a hurricane, you know, let's try to write a hurricane story. And so first I'm just trying to tell a good story. Like let's figure out who these characters are, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing, you know, when I talk about conflict with my students, what I talk about all the time is conflict should be happening on two separate levels in the story, right? The surface and underneath the surface, the mm -hmm. exterior of the story. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a, there ought to be a thing. It doesn't have to necessarily be a, you know, a natural disaster, but there ought to be something putting pressure on the characters from the outside of the characters. And then also a thing putting pressure, like this sort of expanding pressure inside the character mm -hmm. that's pushing out. So, and those to me are great stories. Like when those, th and, and also they're affecting each other, right? So the, the interior, the, the sort of man versus self thing, that interior conflict is affecting the decisions that the character makes in response to the exterior pressure and vice versa. The exterior pressure is causing the character to make, you know, decisions or to think things about themselves or their, you know, their, whatever's happening in their life. And I think that's true in those stories. One of the things that was fun about that, about that novella, I, that I, I don't know how well it works or whatever, but 
is like letting the storm isolate those characters. So they're right, not like working right. together. They're having to figure these things out on like five or six individual levels. And they're like echoes between each one. You know, if the story works, like they're, they're each grappling with things that sort of make a hope this sort of larger the word tapestry is in my head, which sounds really lame, but like this sort of, I don't know, like the sum of the experience of their experiences is greater than, you know, the, the, in, the individual pieces of it. I love that feeling and it doesn't always happen. Or it doesn't always work, but where there's something pressing in from the outside, you know, and then there's this other thing pressing out from the inside, even if it's characters like sitting around having a cup of coffee, if you can get both of those things to happen, like the story feels incredibly intense, you know, it feels urgent, you know? And so, um, and in that case, it's literally urgent. They have to do things before the hurricane, right, w- right. you know, wipes them away. Right. But, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean there needs to be a hurricane, it can be, you know, they want to get some Chinese food mm-hmm. and they got to make a yeah, decision. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. and am I going to participate in this, in this robbery or am I not going to participate in this robbery? And um, so Swan's friends are, you know, I'm talking about Sadiq's story, the Okaduk. Swan's friends are providing that exterior pressure. Like, let's go do this thing. Let's go rip this guy off and get this food. And he's resisting that exterior pressure. So, and he's trying to make a decision about like who he is in this place and how this place has shaped him. And that's a perfect example of it, you know? Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, it's in- interesting to think of like, how the external internal like coexists and in the story wow i have so many more questions but we got we gotta wrap this up michael knight ladies and gentlemen it's been a pleasure pleasure having this conversation with you pleasure was mine you should do this professionally man. somebody <laughs> needs to get you a show <laughs> thank you for listening to the swanee review podcast if you like what you heard the best way to support the swanee review America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesawanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at The Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is The Sewanee Review, new since 1892.